Um, I want you to remember, I say every week, but just the same. Some of you could probably see it verbatim with me. Don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. And so, read along with me, would you please? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever for your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you will take fine flour and baked twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be each cake, which, by the way, is for what it's worth, roughly about a gallon, to give you an idea how big those cakes are. That's a big cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on a pure gold table before the Lord, and you shall put pure incense on each row, that it may be on the bread for memorial and offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Now, the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and the Israelite's woman's son and the man of Israel fought with each other, in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses, whose mother's name was Shelemit, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And then they put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement to a neighbor... As he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If you've ever heard that expression, now you know where it comes from. As he caused disfigurement of the man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. And he took him outside the camp, him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. I think that's pretty close to what it says there. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've promised as the snow falls down to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns to you empty. And as your word goes forth, it will not return empty. It has due purpose. You've told us that your word in Hebrews is sharp, living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the intent thoughts of the heart. Your word cuts through. Please let us hear you today. You've told us that your word, all of your word, is breathed by you and useful for correcting and teaching and rebuking, for equipping training in righteousness that every saint be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Jesus, you've said that we search the scriptures, or at least to those you spoke to, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and said you, they think that by searching them they possess eternal life. And yet you said those were the same that testify of you. So Lord, we want to see you in them. Even as you've said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. So Lord, by the power of your author, your Holy Spirit that you've placed within every believer here, open our eyes and minds and hearts to your truth. Exhume, search and seize that which doesn't belong, that is faulty and wrong in our minds and our hearts. Remove it, Lord, completely and replace it with your truth that we would be not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds as you tell us as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto you in light of your mercy, holy and pleasing as our only reasonable act of worship. So Lord, our reasonable act is a surrender. And then you transform. So here we are, Lord. Cause your word to burst open and flourish and come alive for each of us. You know where we're at. Speak to every one of us individually as well as corporately now, I pray. Have your way. Transform this time. Redeem every second. May we have so much fun in your word. May every second be perfect, I pray. As I commit this to you, Lord, bring salvation, bring repentance, bring clarity. May we encounter you, even as you've ordained in this time, in Jesus' name. And Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would appear and I would disappear. And fill me to overflowing. Come upon me in such a way that I would be your jersey now. In Jesus' name. Amen. In this beautiful book that we've been looking at, and we're nearly done now, Leviticus, we've looked at the first seven chapters where God laid out the ground rules of giving us these particular sacrifices. And there are five basic sacrifices he gave us, though there will be more, the the wave offering and the drink offering and such, but five that he lays out as sort of your basics. One through seven. Eight through ten, the priesthood is then enacted, inaugurated, and in doing so, we see the danger of not approaching God as holy. From then, chapters 11 through 16, we saw our need for cleanness, our uncleanness, and thus our need for atonement, which God then shows us in the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. So 11 works its way up to that climax of 16 with the Day of Atonement. 17 starts to move us forward with the idea now of that road to rejoicing, as we see then from 17 through 23, climaxing in 23, where we see then the feasts. Interesting, though, for the seven annual feasts, the first of them, before all of that, was the Sabbath. And he actually called it a feast. A time when he told us had to be two specific things, if you remember. It had to be a holy convocation, a time that was set apart, an appointed time for rest, and a time set apart for us to assemble, because the word literally means to assemble. It was a public assembly. And he's ordained those. Now, for the rest of this time now, we have four chapters that remain in this book. He moves us from this issue of atonement, and of course God knows even in his order what he's doing. He he walks us from this issue of atonement, being covered and cleansed by the blood. It's the blood, it's the blood, it's the blood. To the idea of then going to the feast and starting to live this joyful life. Now we go from, understand, from atonement to rejoicing, to letting our light so shine. And that becomes the rest of the book. And he starts us off that way now here in this chapter. As he begins by telling us that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring a specific type of oil from a specific method that is to be for the lights that they are to burn. And the word that he uses is continually. In the tabernacle, it was just a tent with four coverings and had one opening on the east side that was closed. And as that was the case, the major room had three articles of furniture. Walking in, if you were, heading towards it. To your right would be the table of showbread. To the left would be your lampstand. And before you, your altar of incense. Then would be this big 
curtain, and then on the other side of that curtain would be the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God said he dwelt between the cherubim. And we knew that as a priest walked from that side, only a priest could come in, but as a priest walked from that side to this side, the only source of light in the entire room was that lampstand. And if that light were not lit, you would be in complete darkness. No priest would be able to approach for the purpose of testifying of God's provision on the table of showbread, for the issue of offering prayer at the altar of incense, or on the day of Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement, as we start to see he couldn't get into the area where he could actually offer the offering for our sins. The only light that led someone to that place of God's presence, the only light that led them was one particular piece of furniture. And that was it. He didn't say you could bring in whatever light you wanted. It doesn't really matter. LED, if you want to be kind of energy conscious, or if you're kind of waste consuming, bring in your own, make a torch, or whatever the case. He said, there's only one light, and I have a specific way for it to be made. That particular thing was a stand. He called it a candle stand. Or not a candle stand, that's how we look at it. A lamp stand. Menorah is the word. That menorah had a specific way that it was built, and we've already had the mock-up, so if you've been around, we've kind of put them up so you can see them. But they held the lamps. This thing with 75 pounds of pure gold held up, and they held these. This is an actual lamp from about 23, 2400 years ago. I have a couple here, and you're welcome to look at them as long as you don't try to juggle them. Because you might imagine they're a little fragile. The way that these work is quite simple. The oil was placed in here. The old and frayed robes of the priest were ground to make the wick. So that nothing was wasted. And that then got slipped into here. And as it was, usually slipped in one side, turned it around, slipped it in so that it was covered then in the oil. And you put only the first press pure olive oil in here. So as the olives were then harvested, they were placed in these baskets, crushed with a very heavy rock, and they called it the blood of the olive, would then pour forth, and only that first press was allowed for this because they wanted it pure. And every level from that point on was actually used. As a matter of all the way down to the mash, by the time that they went and they ground it and they pushed it and they ground it some more, even the last part, the gooey just mash part at the end of it all was still used as compotes for medicine. They didn't take any part of it and wasted it. So imagine, if you will, that there are seven of these sitting on a stand. As it were the case, there was maintenance. The maintenance was twofold, if you think about it. One was you needed to make sure that the wick was in there, and the second you needed to make sure there was oil. If there was an oil, it will only burn for a period of time. By the way, how many of you have even heard of the festival or the, the, um, the holiday of Hanukkah? Hanukkah, any of you heard of Hanukkah? Does anyone know what that is? Because it revolves around this. Do you know that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah? It's actually in John chapter 10, it tells us, that he went to the Feast of Dedication. In the 160s BC, for what it's worth, there was a man who was a madman. Called himself Epiphanes, which means, in essence, God incarnate. They called him Epimenides, sort of a play in his name, which means crazy guy. And he was. He believed that he really was a God incarnate, and he demanded everyone to bow down and worship him. Everywhere he went, he just decimated and dominated following kind of the, the momentum of Mark Anthony. And as it was, the, or Alexander the Great, I'm sorry. And as it were the case that he went to this area in Jerusalem. He had ordered a couple idols to be placed in the temple for people to bow down to. And as he sent his sort of delegation, there was a renegade priest whose last name means, means the hammer. We know him as Maccabees. And that particular gentleman, older gentleman priest, looked at the other priests, and he said, this is the quite simple thing. He goes, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. If you bow down, I'm going to kill you. Now he's an older guy, so you humor him, and you think, I think it's really sweet what he's up for. And when they came to the area, and they put out, and they put out the statue, and the first priest bowed down to worship it, BAM! He ran a javelin right through him, right in front of everyone. I almost went, <laughs> and everyone all of a sudden got terribly good posture. It was amazing how that worked. One man, one elderly man, 
who was not going to bow to their idols. And he became the peasant revolt. And these particular people, then led by his son, as he would sort of mark off the scene, his son would lead this peasant revolt, and they would go and get the temple back. And as they got the temple back, they rededicated, they cleansed it, because it had been all kinds of desecrated by these wicked people. Well, the problem was, is that they, remember, you can't just have oil, you have to have this specific oil. And they went and they found a jar of this oil in the temple, but it was only enough for one day. But it takes several days to make this kind of oil. So with that in mind, they put it in the particular lampstand, lit it, and the miracle, or so it says, is that it lasted for eight days. That's why, well, normal candle stands or lampstands are seven, it's eight. Because the idea was that it was a miracle for these eight days for it to burn what should have only been one day. But God has this habit of doing that with oil. If you've read the stories of Elijah, for instance, and, and so forth. Now, now follow me on this. Because this means, I mean, we could look at it from a thousand perspectives, but for the simplest perspective, Jesus turned to his disciples. This is Matthew chapter 5. And for context, if you look at the end of Matthew chapter 4, it is one of my favorite places. We used to go to Israel once or twice a year, and we'd teach at the Sermon on the Mount. One of my favorite places. Well, everyone's kind of in their cool little big church, whatever thing. We're out on the mountainside where Jesus was. And you get this idea that it says that Jesus calls these disciples. They leave their nets, they leave their boats, they leave their father, they leave their everything. They forsake everything to follow him, according to this. And it says, and they brought to him. Who? The disciples. Who were the disciples? Remember, all disciple means, it's a fancy word for us, it only means students. Jesus was recruiting students. And they were fishermen with rugged hands, foul mouths, and knew how to handle a smell. Where we had come from in California used to be a fishing community. One thing's for sure, fish stink. Even fresh fish smell okay at best, but the older, the better. The, oh, the only meat that I'm aware of that actually, true story, decomposes exponentially. Do you know that? It's kind of like a calculus equation, how quickly those things start to erode. It's pretty rotten. And you think, have you ever heard of things like ghost shrimp or things like that that they use for bait? Oh, mama, they are not pretty. In the open, someone could be across the room and you could, you know, across the field and you'd still smell it. But these guys are perfect for it. And it says, and they brought to them, to him, Jesus, those that were possessed, those that were powerless, they were paralyzed, they were, and those that were in every way in great need. They were tormented with various diseases, they were possessed, they were paralyzed, and he healed them. Please hear me, please, before we even dive into this text, and the good news, I had, I'd hope to go to four chapters, we're just going to be happy to go through one today. Um, because he can't rush through this, it's like running through the Louvre, it's like a, crim, a crime to do that. Jesus is standing there, and he's got guys that aren't known for their brilliant wit. Not that they weren't smart. But he was looking for people with simple faith. And if you would have sat down with these guys and listened to their effective ministry, every person they seem to touch gets healed. How is that for a cool ministry? It's exploding. Thousands of people are popping up all of a sudden. You want to sit down with them, and you say, Hey, John, James, Peter, Andrew, what's the secret to your ministry? Would you think they'd sit and start waxing eloquent about all kinds of doctrinal higher echelons? Do you think they'd start talking about specific brands? Of, oh, this is the way that you do worship. This is the kind of orchestration. This is how you do it. How many songs? And do you think that's where they would have gone with it? Do you think they would have told you what kind of building you needed to be in? Do you think they would have talked about how important a specific liturgy was? You know what they'd have said? Well, this is all I know. If I could get them to Jesus, he could fix them. You know, that's all. That was, and that was effective ministry. They didn't go, you know what, I had to know how bad their problem was. I needed to figure out whether I should get them to a trained, you know, professional somewhere, or whether I got them to Jesus. It's like, look, if I could get them to Jesus, I know we could fix them. And that was where ministry started. Interesting, because at the end of the ministry, when you find in the, Ma in the book of Matthew, it said he took them to the mountain. And I kind of get the idea, maybe at the end of it all, after Jesus is resurrected, because his angels kept saying, go to Galilee, go to Galilee, he's going to meet you there. Can I get the idea? Jesus went back there with them. You see, there was a time where Jesus stood up, and there were, like, imagine, picture it. There's piles of cots from people that were paralyzed who couldn't get up. That, I mean, think about how bad that smells, but fishermen can handle it. 
And there they are. Oh, yeah, this guy's right. All right, let's get up there. But I just give him to Jesus. They'll take care of it. You know, I mean, that's because you know, sir, it's like, hang on, buddy. Well, you're not going anywhere anyways. You know, hang on, you know. It's like, I know once I get you there, you're going to be fine. And now there's a pile of them and a pile of crutches, people who we're leaning on. It's amazing people tell you Jesus is a crutch. Jesus is a crutch. He's my life. How do you, how's a dead guy lean on a crutch? And there were chains from, from people who were possessed. Which one of you has the hands to grab a guy that's possessed and say, you're going to church with me? You know why? Because you were convinced if you could get him to Jesus, he could fix him. And now there's all kinds of levels. And, oh, I don't know, that person may be too far gone. Or, really? 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 And then Jesus stands up. Now, what if that was you? That was you as the crowd. You know what you were this morning? You were a basket case. You were a drain to this society economically. You were a plea to someone's pity. You were the the opportunity for someone to do a good deed. You were a needy person. In that society, that's what you were. Possibly cursed. You've done something wrong. God's getting you back. It's vengeance time. But who are you now? Do you ever get the idea here that Jesus doesn't like us building our identity from our tombstones. David, what are you? I'm an ex. No, you're not. You're better than that. Why get your identity from where you came from? You know what I was? Hey, there is time to talk about the power of God in that. But see, Jesus doesn't sit down and go, you know what, let's get all of the people who were possessed over here so that we could say you guys are the ex, you know, possessed. Let's get all the people who were paralytics here because we're going to start a dance ministry with you because I thought that would be kind of fun. Let's get the people over here who were blind and we're going to actually have you paint because I thought that would be really cool to prove it. I mean, think about where that could go. Now, understand in this, Jesus doesn't. We all sit in the same place because we're all actually in the same crowd. And he looks and now, he says, let me tell you what you are. You're blessed. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. You're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. All the way down to being persecuted for righteousness. You're blessed. You see, until you get that figured out, what kind of ministry are you going to have? You'll actually look for people that were like you were and try to connect with them where you were instead of maybe reaching a whole broad, broader spectrum of people simply because he's got more for you than that. Do you get that? And I'm going, you know what, well, We'll say, well, well, what are you, Shirley? Blessed. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, that was good. Okay, that's good. Mar- Marcia, what, what, are, what are you? Yeah, Anthony, what are you? Imon? Blessed. Lauren? Daniel? P. Sorry, you, I, you got it, man. What's it? Yes, you blessed. You blessed. And then Jesus turns to these people and he says, let me tell you what else you are. You're the salt of the earth. Everyone knew salt was preservative. It actually testified of eternity. Do you know that? It was one thing that reminded people that there was a thing transcending their moment. And then he turns and says, and you're the light of the earth. That ought to say something. You're the light of the world. Thanks, Marcia. You're the light of the world, and it says a city on a hill, you can't hide it. You could start off with that concept, but then for a person that was raised Jewish, well, that made it better. (laughs) For a person that was raised Jewish, they would remember that one light because it was that only one, that one light that led people to the presence of God. And it would take us all the way back to this chapter where it all started. And in this chapter, he started by saying, now look at there are some specific things about keeping this light lit. And if we took to heart what it says, I really believe God has application for every one of us in this specific arena. 
But have you ever seen the person and they seem like they burned so bright in the beginning and they were so powerfully lit and then somewhere down the line they're just kind of now like a smoking flax? And you wonder, what happened? They used to be such a bright light. What happened? Well, can I just say, can that never be said of you? I'd rather die better than I started. How about you? Because in the end of it all, one thing I've learned, people remember the beginning, and they remember the end. The middle is always a bit fuzzy. I want to end well. Look at it with me. Some simple, practical applications here. It says again here, look at verse Five, as we start now in application. The very first thing he gets to, the very first thing, he says, you shall take fine flour and bake cakes on it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Do you notice how the word gold is in italics? Have you noticed that? Do you know what that means? That means it isn't in the original language. They add it to help you understand what they're trying to say. Here's the problem. The table of showbread wasn't pure gold, was it? Pure gold was placed upon it, but it was made out of wood and then covered in gold. But I get it. Here I am in prayer and I'm asking, because understand, this isn't just about, hey, I want our fellowship to burn bright. This is about me too. Because, you know, whether you know it or not, more than a pastor, I'm a Christian. I'm actually one of you. There's no chasm. I don't have a hotline to God. It isn't like all of you are all in the same thing. It's like, hello, wait, hello, welcome to heaven. Oh, please hold, please hold. Oh, hello, welcome to heaven, please hold. And then I go, hey, Tony, hey! Like, I got this own line. It isn't like that. And he says, you're going to take this bread that testifies of God's provision. But listen, he goes, please hear me. He goes, I went out on a pure table. I get the idea as I start to look at this. I think of James 4, where it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war against your members? You lust and you don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight in war and you cannot have. First of all, because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because when you have it, you would spend it on your own pleasures. And he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You want your light to not burn bright? Fill your heart full of things that you think you need that you don't. And then try to figure out why God isn't giving it to you. How does a light burn bright when that's where the table is? The table's to be pure. Gold speaks of faith. And God wants our table pure so that when we're actually asking, we're not saying, God, here's all my plans. Why aren't you getting with my program? But instead we say, not my will, but yours be done. Because the moment we start seeing that, we see a whole lot more of God's provision. Now let me ask you, and this is for me to hear as well, how's your table? Is your table at that place right now where you're like, I need, I need, I need, why isn't God? When every good gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Hey, if you're not getting it, it's not good. Or your table's not right. Notice in verse 7, we get the second of our three things here. You shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a bread for a memorial and offering made by fire to the Lord. And I get this, this is interesting. By the way, do you know that frankincense is actually edible? Pure frankincense? The last time we actually, when we did the table of showbread, you can listen to the, to the MP3 on the, online, but you can't taste the bread. We actually had the bread, came, we had the bread, and we covered it in frankincense, and everyone ate it, and we were all, nobody got sick for it, that I'm aware. Um, pure, pure frankincense is actually quite edible. It's a, it's a natural uh, antibiotic, by the way. It's kind of a nice thing to eat that way. But it's an incense that speaks of devotion, of praise, Psalm 141, verse 2. 
Let my prayer be set before you as incense and the lifting of my hands like the evening sacrifice. You know, I can only tell you what the Lord's been showing me because I want to be the kind of person that says like Paul, what I have received, I offer you, if that makes sense. And I understand, I'm not, I don't read this stuff and go, now, how do you want me to teach it, God? I ask, what do you want to change in me? What introspection, what quiz I need to give myself in this? In the first case, it's simple. God, how's my table? Am I filled of all kinds of convoluted thoughts about what I really think I need and what's really important that isn't in your sight? But I get to this one. And I get the idea that there's a problem with my gratitude. And the Lord asked me a couple questions. And so I want to ask you them. Forgive me for bringing this up if it's a bit rough, and it may be. How many of you have lost someone close to you to death by show of hands? I'm sorry. Okay. My next question. How many of you could even tell me the date of when that person died? Show of hands. Hold them up high for just a second, would you please? Thank you. Okay. My eyes aren't working that well, so I need your help. Here's the next one. Ready? You can put it down. How many of you have watched someone that you know that's close to you, that you love, come to Jesus? Raise your hand right now. Hold them up high. Hold them up high. Okay. How many of you can tell me the date of that? Hold your hand up. Okay, thank you. I'll be honest with you. I can tell you the day my mother died and I was 11. But I can't even tell you the day that both of my children gave their life to Christ. I think it's so amazing to me how quickly we can document and make monuments of those horrible moments. And I'm not telling you to make light of those moments. I'm telling you we need to stop making light of the miracle. Because he wants this covered in frankincense. You want your light to shine. How does our light shine when all we can think is May, that's the month. But we can't say, oh, April, that's the month I gave my life to Jesus. That's the month my daughter said yes. That's the month my wife said yes. Because when that happens, the light starts to burn a little brighter. Let's face it, can't we naturally gravitate sometimes to some of the most heavy moments? We can make a month out of that. And he tells us here, I want this covered in frankincense. And notice what it says, that it would be on the bread. What's the next part? What does it say? For what? A memorial. Because God really wants us to be able to take that stuff that, I mean, this is God's provision here. This is the testimony of God's provision. Can you tell me a moment in your life where God just flat out provided? Because that's what all of this revolves around, isn't it? I kind of get the idea on this. That if our whole life is consumed about thinking we're not getting what we need, or our whole life is freaking out about how the bill's going to get paid, where the next thing is, How does our light shine through that? Especially if we can't recall the last frankincense. Well, there's one thing that will help us with that, and that's the third of them. So the Lord asks me again, where am I at with my frankincense? How's my table? How's my frankincense? The third, notice what it says then, verse 8. Every Sabbath he shall set in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy to him. And the offerings of the Lord made by fire is a perpetual or by a perpetual statute. When does the fresh bread come? You tell me. When does the fresh bread come? Oh, say it with dignity. Go ahead. When does it come? It comes on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, I want to remind you, was the time that we had the Shalom or Mo'id, the appointed time to rest from all that we normally do. It was the Migrad Kodesh. It was the time that we publicly assembled for a set-apart purpose. And God says, once a week, once a week I want you together. 
Because we think that church should just be the time where someone teaches and maybe we sing a few songs. But God says, I want you to get together so that as you start to fall in love with me, you start to fall in love with each other. So there's something practical to that idealism of love. And then you start serving each other like you're supposed to. You become parts of the body. Not just leeches. Isn't that what we would be otherwise? We kind of come in, we suck, we leave. We come in, we suck, we leave. That's our shirts. I'm a Christian, I suck. That's what they would be. Came in to suck. Oh, I don't like that church. Why? Because I just, what I suck, I don't like. I mean, you know, they're, they're, their worship team sucks, and I can't suck from it. The teaching, it sucks. I can't suck from it. I'm going to go to a place where, in, because we become consumers. And think about what a consumer is. A smart consumer is the person who gives the least and gets the most. Isn't that a smart consumer? You'd make a show for it. But God never called us consumers. He called us children. Servants, very different. Slaves. And he really wants us to step up. How are we going to serve each other if we're not around each other? But get this. Once a week, we get together, and we actually have, get this ready, Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon service. You know the funny part about that? Is that we tend to think that means Sunday morning serve us. <laughs> Instead of Sunday morning serve. Sunday afternoon serve we serve others. But what would happen if that came? That we actually caught that? You know what would happen? Your light would start burning brighter. My light would start burning. You know, all I'm doing here is just seeking to be faithful to what he's telling me to do. That's it. Do you imagine what would happen to you? Now, I'm not saying you're in disobedience right now. That's for you to work out with God. But I am saying this, that I don't obey him as much as I should, and I'd love to. I did. You guys are looking, if, if our light's going to burn bright, Get this. If our light's going to burn bright, then let's get that table ready. Lord, because if you're going to provide, I want you to provide on a right table that's pure so that when you do provide, I'm ready to put the frankincense. Not just, wow, is that, is that it? When you realize what God's giving is m- abundant for his direction, Sometimes we think it's lacking for ours for good reason. And he goes, hey, so is the table right? Well, how about that, that gratitude? When God does give, am I willing to say, you know what? This was a profound moment. I want to make sure I remember this for the rest of my life. You can get a tattoo about something horrible that happened to you, but would you get anything that commemorates the great moment that God did something or he really did something you saw happen? And then after all that, it's like, Lord... Give me a hunger for this, for the real Sabbath. Not just a time where it's like, oh man, how long am I going to be here? Could you imagine? You ever have that? Friends come over to your house, they have children. And you know one thing you learn about children is they're really gifted at just saying it like it is. (sighs) How long do I have to be here? You look at the parents and try to make it look like you didn't hear them, so you try to pretend, right, that you're staring at something else. Don't worry, honey. It's gonna, it won't be that long. <laughs> but they were there. they're there to fellowship. Family's there to fellowship, and they're, to ha- they're there to enjoy you. You're there to enjoy them. Kids are there because they got to come. And we could be either here, or we could be like, Lord, I just want to fellowship with you and with each other. You know, First John says in chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's like, I want you to walk in the light, but part of that's having fellowship. That comes with it. It's a product of it. It says that he, in Ephesians, you were once darkness, but now you're light. You were once darkness, but we're not. So that's why we don't sing songs with all due respect and say stuff like, when I stumble in the darkness. I don't stumble in the darkness. I can walk with my eyes closed. We can all agree that's stupid. But if you're light, there isn't that. You know who actually is walking in the darkness, according to 1 John, where that comes from? He who hates his brother. And he says, he who hates his brother hasn't seen him or known him. You really don't want to put yourself in that. It says, you belong to the night. Nope. No, I don't. I don't belong to the night. 
I belong to the morning star, the perfect rising sun. The rest of the chapter is kind of interesting because in the rest of the chapter, there's a fight and they kill a kid. Did you get that? And then God lays this law of equal retribution at the end of it all. But he didn't, I mean, this could have, he could have put it anywhere, but he put it right here of all places. I get the idea up to this point, right? I want my light to burn. Lord, let my table be pure. Lord, let my frankincense be ready. Lord, let me be ready every Sabbath, and I want to be able to rest with you, and we'll see that even more so next week. And not only that, I wanted to have that holy convocation, and that's what you told me, by the way, in Leviticus 23, 3 and 4. But then listen to this again, verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and an Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought. Notice that in one case the child was called the son of an Israelite woman in the other case the guy was called an Israelite. This is more than being mixed race. You know, nowhere in scripture does God condemn mixed race relationships. What he does condemn is mixed religion relationships. There's a real problem with that. Because two people that are in love with Christ have the same color blood in them. They have the same Savior, and they have the same direction. And since the Lord looks at the inside anyways, right? Man looks at the outer appearance. The Lord looks at the inside. That's fairly easy for him to see that you look the same because either Jesus lives in you or you don't. If Jesus lives inside of both of you, well, then clearly you look a lot alike. But these two people were from very different places. And how do you know that? Because of the way he treated the name of the Lord. By the way, if we took it as seriously as God did, things would look a little different around here. Now, I'm not telling you we need to go out and have walk around with a pack, a pack of stones for the next person to say something. But don't tell me that the world is not that brazen. All you need to do is sit on a tube, sit on a train in a tube, or look at a bus on its side, and you'll see there's all kinds of things that basically tell you to get over it and just, this is who we are, and deal with it. But we won't do that as Christians. We're like, oh, we don't want to step on your toes. And all of a sudden, they put on, like, fake giant toes to get more room. The two of them began to fight, and as the two of them began to fight, one of them gets mouthy. Verse 11, it says, The Israelite woman's son blasphemed, notice, the name of the Lord. And he cursed. So this guy, have you noticed, by the way, nobody seems to curse Muhammad or Buddha or anyone else? Anyone ever notice that? Imagine you stub your toe when you, someone stubs their toe and they're like, Oh, Buddha! You just don't hear it! You're certainly not going to bring up the other one because, man, someone just might be like, ah, da, 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 da. you're like, that's it. You're like running out of the Sainsbury's. Did I just do that out loud? <laughs> yeah, show me that one on the bus. Two Muslim teachers. One of them is gay. Get over it. Our work isn't done. Let's see how that one works out. And I'm not trying to pick on that. I'm just trying to say that that's the way the world is. I've heard it said, and none have said it. <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised that sinners are willing to sin. We should be more surprised that saints aren't willing to be holy. The word for blaspheme, and I'll only give you two words here in this sense. The other ones are names, which basically means peaceable. And then the name wordy. Who names their child? Dibri, which means wordy. My kid talks a lot. Is the word for blaspheme is the word kebab. Can you say kebab? Kind of, to be honest, like kebab. And the word means to scoop out, to pierce through. You kind of get the idea. So that should be an easy word to remember, right? Or kebab, it all depends on where you're from. <laughs> the idea of it's to stab with words. Now, we have words like that today. We used to have, we use terms like cut low or burn. Oh, Burn! You know, if you ever hear people do that, they do that next to you. You could say anything. It's like, how are you doing? Oh, you look good today. Oh, burn! And like all of a sudden, they're like, what? What did you say? I was giving a compliment. But this guy, in other words, he started digging at him with his words. And it God. And then the word for curse. And the word there is the word halal. And the word halal means to literally make light. Don't miss this. It still happens in a lot of Africa today. 
You want to actually compliment somebody in Africa, you have to say the opposite you would here. In places in Africa, people go, oh, you look fat. And that's actually a compliment. I mean, here you could get slapped. <laughs> hey, hello, brother, you look fat. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. You know, I mean, because there, the idea of it is the bigger you are, the more you're blessed. It's kind of the idea. And I just want you to know, my blessings are increasing by the day. <laughs> Welcome to Calvary Chapel on Eaton Road. Come and be blessed. You have a problem with self-image, you might want to pray that one away. <laughs> but to the Middle Eastern mind, something heavy has great value. And you kind of know that. Certain things you can buy. There's like two different, like, if you ever have these, like, you know those docking stations? You ever do that? There are two different docking stations. And this one, it's like kind of little, but it's kind of like this. And then this one is like this big, and it's got like things sticking out of it, and disco lights, and a little ball pops up and spins around. All, and you think, wow. And you look at this one, and you pick it up, and it's like, whoa, there's something too. You pick this one up, you hit yourself in the head because there's no weight to it. And you kind of know this one's probably more valuable than this one is. It may have all the beautiful outside decorations and may look good, but once you pick it up, it's light because it ain't got nothing inside. Should I say, it doesn't have anything inside. Okay, now, that can be, to some people, our Christianity. We got the disco ball, and we got it all happening, man. Let me tell you what, it's spinning. Things are spinning, and lots of, whoa! People are doing circles in the aisles, and they're foaming and screaming and yelling and slapping each other in the spirit or whatever that is. And, and then they walk up, and it's like, but when it comes down to the moment when the wind starts to blow, they get blown over. And that tells you there's no, there's no depth. And I, hey, you could still have all that passion and put it in the right place because the Lord wants to be worshipped. He seeks to find us worshipping in spirit and in truth. But what this guy has done, he's, he's made God, please hear me, he's verbally, publicly declared that God was unimportant. That's what he just did. He's taken that which was supposed to be the name above all names. The only name. Do you realize Satan is going to bow one day? If he's got knees. Every atheist is going to bow one day. Because it says, every knee will bow. So when someone says, I don't believe in Jesus, blah, 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 I just start looking for their knees. You got some knees? Okay. You're going to use those one day. I guarantee you we are going to agree one day. Or as it said, every knee will bow, beat the rush, do it now. Now I'm not trying to get cocky and cheeky. There's a lot of things we can do, but can I in my own life make God less important and his name unimportant you talk to someone on the street that's christian and they're like hey i just want you to know that jesus really been blessing me lately it's been such a time in jesus name and i just want to tell you jesus really a great day and because you kind of know you could say the rest of it and no one's going to flip out on you you say, God bless you. And for some people, I'm like, whatever. And other people are like, oh, great. Because you pick your own God. It's okay. Here's the salad bar. The moment you say Jesus, it's like everything starts flipping out. You notice that? That's why I like to say Jesus bless you. So just in case you know, that's why that's next Sunday night is Jesus night. Just in case you were wondering who we're praising, you know it before you get there. But I kind of get the idea in this. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be real. And in Ma- it's in Mark, chapter 1. You don't have to get very far. Jesus walks into a synagogue. That's church, basically, for the, for the time being. And, and as he walks into a synagogue, a guy starts freaking out because he's possessed. Which then, of course, Jesus has to promptly deal with. My question is, why wasn't he freaking out before Jesus got there? He was in church. Shouldn't he have thought he should have been a little bit uncomfortable from the get-go? You know why? Because Jesus wasn't there. Bless you. And I mean that word for all. Jesus bless you. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, Paul and Peter are arrested. I'm sorry, no. John and Peter are arrested. Paul would be more the arresting party at that point. And it's an interesting thing because as they start telling him, they're like, look it. Shut up about the name. That's what they tell him. Shut up about the name. If you could read into it, it would be like this. 
hey, you can have your little services, you can have your irritating little t-shirts and put on your little internet radio stations, listen to your music, and even tweak our little symbols and make them a little like Reborn instead of Reebok. Ha, 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 whatever. But shut up about the name. You join hands and have your little things and feed the poor, clothe the destitute, go out to some other place that's been affected by an earthquake or whatever this natural disaster is. That's just real. You just shut up about the name. As long as you shut up about the name, we could actually be cool with each other. Shut up about the name. And this is what I learned, and I've said this before to some of you, but we're almost done here. I played American football pretty seriously for a period of time, and if you don't know how that works, you don't have to. You grab a ball and you run, and everyone tries to kill you. But if you get to the other side of it, you get points. Let's just start with that. And this is what I've learned. Back when I played ball, they actually just tried to land on you. They tried to take out your knees, take out your hips, take out your ribs. It's, it's effective. Today, it's a little bit different of a game. It's all about going for the ball. And I've learned this. Peter, come on up here for a second, because you'd be a good guy to demonstrate this, okay? Don't worry, there will, should be no bodily harm involved, I hope. It could be, could be me, yeah, that's right. So, yeah. The... Um, Let's say Peter is the guy, and we're going to call him a running back. What that means is he's running with the ball. And they've thrown the ball in, and he takes that ball, because it's just like rugby, tucks it in, right? And there he is. He pulls it in, and he's running. And as he's running this way, traditionally the idea was, is I'm going to come down here, and I'm just going to try to tackle him. I'm going to stop him. Today what I've learned is, is that they just kind of come this way, and they try to grab him. They just try to strip the ball. Now here, please hear me on this. If Peter loses the ball, he can run as far as he wants that way but it isn't going to make a difference. And the reason is because you don't score any points without the ball. Is that the same in rugby, right? You mean without the ball, it's just kind of you're like a cheerleader running around, right? Okay, okay, go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, bro. All right. That was pretty safe. Yeah, see? Oh, I wasn't going to mess around. Okay, all right. Please, please hear me because this is what contemporary ministry looks like to so many people. You know what it looks like? Hey, we, we fed a bunch of people. Congratulations. We gave clothes to a bunch of people down, you know, like where they don't really have a lot of clothes. That's awesome. You know what? There were some people starving in Africa and we gave them food. Hey, that's awesome. The question is, did you carry the ball? See, because you know that if you don't carry the ball, even secular people will say, well, that's really nice. You're a nice person. But can I just say, having been involved in some of those programs, the biggest obstacle to getting Jesus to people are other Christians not telling them about Jesus. Because what happens is you show up in a place like that and you're like, look, at nobody's a good person and everybody needs Jesus. And they'll say, well, they're nice people and they're not Christians. And you're like, actually, they are Christians. They just didn't have the ball to tell you. Because if they had the ball to tell you, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be where it went. Okay? That's not what I meant. Okay. If they take the ball with them, you'd hear the name of Jesus. That's the point. Let's move beyond that right away. Please hear me. You know that if you don't mention the name of Jesus, that's a lot less trouble. But when you mention the name of Jesus, there's a lot more fruit. The question is, where do you want to go? These couples in a fight, these two guys are in a fight, and this guy's like, whatever, and he just starts rattling off these nasty things about our God... And then they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. At this point, it's like, it's almost like we kind of, you know what happens when two guys get in a fight? Everybody goes, because we're all, we're decent, upright, we're civilized people. We stand at a distance and we pull out our phone to video it for our, <laughs> right? For YouTube or whatever the case. I mean, I don't, I don't. Usually I, I have this terrible habit of getting involved just because I'm, I'm not that bright. But, but please hear me. It's like, it's like people are watching the fight. It's like kind of get the idea. But the moment the guy starts blaspheming, people go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is an entirely different thing now. And then they arrest him. Just they put him in custody. It wasn't me. They arrest him. And as they arrest him, now they're like, we need to know what to do about this guy. This guy actually brought God's name into it in a very nasty way. So here's what they, so they, like, so they go and say, right, Moses, go and find out. So Moses goes to the Lord and he's like, all right, Lord, what do I do? And God says, listen, this guy needs to die. And you go, wow, that sounds really, really harsh. But listen, then he says this interesting thing. He goes, no, listen. And it's like in the same breath. It isn't like God says, now, onto other things. He says, listen, someone kills a cow, give him a cow. That's the way that works. 
someone kills a man, he's to die. Everything else was restitution. Understand, everything else was the maximum restitution. The only one that says surely was killing a man is surely, that man is surely put to death. Not surely, but surely, for sure. But he says, look it, if someone knocks out your tooth, you cannot break his jaw. The worst you could do is break his knock out his tooth. You can't go beyond it. Someone puts out your eye, you cannot then from that point on make him permanently blind in both eyes. The most you can do. But if somebody kills a man, death is the result. Then God says, now kill the man. And that's in the same breath. Did you get that? I thought, wow, that's a really odd place to put that. Or is it? Understand what death is. Death is a separation of relationship. That's what it is. That's why we grieve. If you've lost someone you love, you know why that hurts. You've lost the relationship with them. But listen, you cannot have a relationship with God and not let him be holy. That's what God dealt with, if you remember, with two of Aaron's sons back in Leviticus 10. And all of a sudden, you realize what happens when we start doing that with God? We kill him in our own heart. He is not dead, but he might be in our own heart. Nietzsche's saying God is dead, but it's clear in your heart he is. But he's still living everywhere else. And understand, the moment we try to make God just our homeboy, our essay, or whatever it is, and we cease to let him be the holy, awesome, mighty Lord. And by the way, this is the way we do it. It's according to scripture, it says there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No other, ma- no other name. Hey, if that offends you, if you think you deserve more than one way out of hell, you might want to check yourself. We don't deserve any way out of hell. And if God provides us any way, and then we look in the face of a tortured Jesus who died for us on the cross, rose again, and then we look at the Father after His Son was tortured like that, and then say to Him, yeah, 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 what else you got? What does that say? We are to be the most pitiful people on the planet if we really believe that Jesus is one of many ways When Jesus himself knelt in the garden and said, Father, if there's any other way, don't let me go to the cross. And he went. God knows what he's talking about. When people say, well, what about the people in China? It's like, if you're concerned, go. Are you going to go to hell for some guy you've never met that your concern hasn't heard? Well, if God's so loving, why would he make hell? To make your choice easy. Why would you in your right mind choose it? Why would you even risk it? He loves you and he wants you, beloved. And he's that serious. And God says, look it. I, don't, I want you to realize what this looks like to me. You play around with me and just be like, and you start doing that? Jesus is just one of the whatevers? Well, we're afraid to offend people. Well, can I just say... A real friend offends in love, but he offends the truth. Jesus is the only mediator between man and God. He's the only way. He's the only way. He's the only truth. And he's the only life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. That's what Jesus told me. And and you say, well, then you believe him? Yeah, you know what he did that no one else did? He died for me and rose from the dead. What you got? If every person on the planet stood in a line and God said, all right, who wants to die for Tony? Only one person stepped forward. It was Jesus. If you lined up every person and said, we need a perfect sacrifice, someone who's never sinned, who can step forward? Only one person stepped forward, and it was Jesus. If you lined up every human being on the planet and say, there's only one, hey, look at, I want you to love someone that hates you, that lives as your enemy. Only one person stepped forward, and that was Jesus. Who's willing to die on the cross? Only one person stepped forward. It was Jesus. And then when everybody else died and stayed there, one person rose from the grave. One person, and that was Jesus. Why do I think he's the only one? Because he's the only one who's done any of those things. What you got? And the good news is, my God wants you too. And he wants your light to shine, because without our light shining, no one's going to be able to go to where his presence is. But if we're busy chasing after what the world has, but say that God's everything, what are we doing? How can we honestly say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, until the new iPhone comes out? 
Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Ooh, what's that? Yeah, I'm learning this. Satan never runs out of catalogs. Have you learned that? You're like, I'm content. He's like, well, then look through this. You know, and we go, oh, I could read the Bible or I could look at this. This has got 160 channels. I need that. I need that. I open up the Bible. I'm good. I'm so good. As we go to prayer, beloved, where are you at today? How's your table? How's your frankincense? Are you receiving what God offers with joy, knowing it's not just good, it's best? How's your time here? Have you come to take? Hey, you could come in that way. But I guarantee you, sooner or later, you're going to fall in love with him so crazy, you're going to want to do something about it. I love that. You know, the good news is, I really believe as the disciples, because I'm just a student too, if I could get you to Jesus, he'll fix you. How are you doing with the name of the Lord? How are you doing with who he really is? Because isn't he who his name is? Jesus Christ. He's not son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ means the anointed one, the promised one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yehoshua, Jesus, means God our Savior. Simplest sense, Savior and Lord. That's what his name is. Is he both? Now look, at if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, let me just make this clear and then we'll pray. It's simple. God paid the price on the cross for you, just like me, rose again from the dead on the third day, and invites you to accept that gift. That is God's provision. It is also his rest. Because the day that you say yes to Jesus, you cease from trying to impress God with your own performance, and you accept his gift instead, and let him do the work in you. See, God's a good fisherman. He catches his fish, and then he cleans them. So where are you at? Have you accepted his gift? I'm going to give you that choice now. If you have, my prayer is you will join with me, not me in leading you in a prayer, me praying a prayer and you joining me. God would cleanse our table, give us fresh frankincense, that God would give us a real heart for the Sabbath the right way. Not like, okay, I need to take a day off, but Lord, give me a heart to assemble and be used. And may I revere you the way you deserve to be revered. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful word. Clearly, Lord, there is a challenge here. Lord, I I want to confess to you, Lord, that I know that we, that the church in Mass in London could burn brighter. But you have promised us in Matthew, Lord, that a smoking flax you will not quench. Lord, and a bruised reed you will not break. Lord, for anyone in here who at one point was a burning light, and they were burning bright, and people were drawn in to see your salvation, your goodness. They were brought into your presence. Restore, Lord, fan into flame and ignite this fellowship to burn as you desire for us to bright. As I think about the churches being stars in your right hand in Revelation. Lord God, please, for we who here have made the claim and are sure we've said yes to you, I pray today for us that you purify our tables, that they be clearly, clearly what you've ordained pure and hungry for your will. That our hearts would be filled with gratitude and that we would be quick to document and make clear those moments, Lord, where you've done in our life amazing and miraculous things. And Lord, where we would be quick to be hungry to assemble, to be used, to be a blessing, as well as to be blessed. Thank you for this beautiful family you're you're bringing together. Thank you for the way you're building us into a holy dwelling place for you. So Lord, we who are 
who claim you already as our Lord and Savior. So Lord, make our light burn bright, we pray in Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And Lord, now as we continue in prayer for just a moment to conclude, <clears throat> you know every heart in here, and if there be any who have not said yes to you, any who are still at this moment debating, but they know today that you have provided, and you've provided simply, you've paid the price for all of our guilt on the cross, buried, and just like Scripture promised, three days later you rose again and offer us a new life now. If there be anyone in this room, Lord, inspire them now to respond. And as I pray this prayer, I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end today, you could say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. And you as a perfect judge have the right to punish all guilt. But I believe you so loved me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for me. And then he died and was buried just like your scripture promised so that all of my guilt could be vanquished. And then on the third day, just like you promised in scripture, he rose again and offered me new life. But you give me that choice now and I say yes. I say yes to Jesus as my Lord and yes to Jesus as my Savior. Have me now and make me yours. As I surrender to you, please wash me clean. Adopt me as your own. I belong to you now. I may not understand everything, but I understand this much. If you really want to be the payment for my sins, I'd be a fool to say no, so I say yes. So here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding, Amen.